0: You're listening to The Stellar Life Project Podcast. My name is Debra Stellingworth. I'm obsessed with systems and strategies to help you create a sustainable lifestyle and still enjoy optimal success on your terms in your career or business. The Stellar Life Project is about how we can make a difference in the world, first for ourselves and then for others. I've had successful careers in education and business before my hyperachiever, perfectionist tendencies led me to such extreme burnout that I woke up to find both my health and my marriage in crisis. On my journey to find a better way, I created the Stellar Life Project, which led me to create a coaching business that supports others on their path to establishing a sustainable lifestyle, doing the work they love and generating the income they want. In this podcast, I share from my experience as business owner and coach, and I host conversations with inspiring leaders and business owners to give you the tried and true strategies to help you expand and create your own stellar life. Hello, and welcome back to the Stellar Life Project podcast. Today's guest was valedictorian in her high school, graduate from Stanford University, had a seemingly effortless climb up the career ladder, and has been a lifelong super achiever. Now, while her path to success might have appeared perfect behind the scenes, she felt anxious and overwhelmed. She wasn't achieving because it was her passion. She was achieving because she was constantly seeking validation from external sources and keeping busy to feel important. She loved leading design teams and creating products that reached billions of people, but it wasn't the depth of meaning she yearned for. Then after years of worshipping at the altar of busyness, she discovered the life-changing power of coaching. After 22 years as a design leader in Silicon Valley, she began to use her design process to help clients make space for what matters. As a leadership and executive coach, she helps entrepreneurs, startup founders, corporate leaders, and other high achievers design the life they've always wanted. In her book that we're going to talk about today, Make Space to Lead, Tutti Teggerly shares personal stories, pulls from her clients' experiences, and teaches readers how they can design their best professional and personal lives. Make Space to Lead is an invaluable resource for anyone who feels burned out, overwhelmed, distracted, and unsatisfied in their work. And I wanted to invite Tootie on the Stellar Life Project podcast because she and I are friends. We have been in a mastermind group together for a year and a half, a little more than a year and a half, and I know her to be someone who is just absolutely passionate about personal growth and learning and has so much wisdom to share. and. She has been such an inspiration to me, and she's the one who kicked my butt and said, just go ahead and do this podcast. And we talk about that in this episode. So I'm absolutely delighted to introduce to you my friend, Tuti Teggerly. Tuti, I am so excited to have you on the show today because... I'm one of your biggest fans, and it's just great to have this conversation. Tutti and I are in a mastermind together, and we usually have a really short period of time really quickly, and so now we get a chunk of time where we get to talk to each other about your new baby. So Tudi has recently written a book, and I am so excited to have her share with you about that book today. So welcome, Tutti.
1: Thank you so much, Deb. I'm excited to spend this time with you and excited to chat and hopefully help educate your listeners a little bit, inspire your listeners a little bit.
0: Well, you are one of the most inspiring people I know, so I'm sure that will happen.
1: So let's start with,
0: the book is called Make Space to Lead. Make Space to Lead, yep.
1: Why did you write this book? Yeah, it sounds like such a simple question, doesn't it? And there are so many layers and nuances of it. You know, I have been supporting clients, people in tech, high achievers, really driven people, including startup CEOs and co-founders for a little over two years now. And for me, as you know, some of this was the start of a journey where I left my job in corporate after 22 years. And my last corporate job was at Facebook. And for me, first and foremost, I wanted to write the book to process really the journey that I was on. Once I left and started my own business, I would write a blog post every week. And the very first one was called How I Left My Corporate Job and Jumped Into the Unknown. And I started writing these blur, these little blog posts week after week after week. And after about a year and a half of this, I realized that there was a bigger message there that I really wanted to share and weave together. So first and foremost, the book needed to be written, the story wanted to be told. And I wrote it for me, selfishly enough. That was my first audience. And then after more and more time passed, and I integrated in more writing, integrated in client stories, integrated in frameworks and coaching, teaching, that was when it really shifted. And then I knew that this was something that I felt would be really valuable for for other people, both in technology as well as outside. So that's kind of the multifaceted rationales behind the book. Yes. And I think
0: it's important, I want the readers to catch that, is that we usually teach what we need to learn. And so that's always the first step, is we write it for ourselves. And I think some people, when they think they want to write a book, are skipping ahead of that process. And it's so valuable to say, I'm just doing this for me. I'm doing this for me first, and then we'll see what we, where we go with it. And, and that's okay to
1: do that for you. Totally. I think one of the funniest things about a month or two after I had finished writing the book it almost took on a life of its own. I could hear the book talking back to me because I was having one of those really frenetic weeks where I had a packed schedule. I had a lot of clients. I had speaking engagements. And I was just going and going and going. And in the midst of all that, I really heard some of the messages from the book. And as you know, Deb, some of the things that you and I have in common is we've got a little bit of a rebellious streak. And One of my first results instincts was to go, oh my gosh, what, who wrote this book? Who's telling me these messages? It is so annoying. And I knew I needed to slow down and and listen and rest. And so it's true. We teach, we write the stuff that we most need to learn.
0: Yes, we've seen that making space, right? Making space to lead for yourself. And I know that's your theme of the year was white space. Mm -hmm white space for you. And then we find ourselves still filling our schedules. We have this habit of filling it. And we'll get into that in a second. But coming from the perspective, you know, I was a literature teacher, so I always want to dig into titles. Let's talk about the title, Make Space to Lead. Why did you land on that particular title? Because it started off with your theme being white space for leadership. And how did you land on Make Space to Lead?
1: Yeah, for the longest time, I was obsessed with the concept of white space. And it comes from my background as a designer, white space being the negative space in between the words on a page. So if you're looking at, say, a printed book or a magazine or something designed, the black type or the colored type, that's the stuff in the foreground. And the white space is the things in between. And as a designer, you need the white space to make the main content pop and stand out. So for the longest time, the working title of my book was White Space to Lead, or there was a time where it was the magic of white space as well. Here's the thing. You and I are older, and I have two nieces who are in their mid-20s. And one of them looked at me and she said, you can't have that as a title. That is just too white do you want a title that really like refers to race? And I'm like, wait, no, that's nothing to do with race. It's the design. It's white space. And her comment stuck with me. And I was thinking about this for a long time until one day in a session with my writing coach, she popped up and she said, make space, make space to lead rather than white space. And that was how one thing led to another. Oh, one other point, which I think is fascinating We all have our own vernacular and words and acronyms that we use. Like I found so much in writing this book, I've had to demystify some ridiculous tech acronyms that I take for granted. And one of the other things my editors pointed out is that, you know, you're assuming that people understand what white space means, but they don't. And if you have a title that's that complicated, that's not going to work. You need something that's going to pop and be more digestible. So that's the meaning behind the title, Deb.
0: Love that. And and it's important for us to remember that we are all meaning making machines. So what means something for me doesn't necessarily mean the same to other people. So yes, I hear that. And it's such a cool journey to watch you go through this process of wrestling with this book. And I remember you showing it, but I meant to say at the beginning of this, when I hit record on this interview is like, I meant to say, warning, there may be some language that you Language. don't want your toddlers to hear as we go into the interview. Because I, there's been times when I know that this book, you're ready to toss it across the room. And there was that wrestling with it, right? And that was part mm-hmm. of that, that experience of writing it. What did you learn most about making space for yourself to lead in
1: the writing of this book? So the biggest surprise to me, and this is the first time I've written anything, I had preconceived notions of what a writer was supposed to do. And my preconceived notions is that you have structure. you have a writing habit. You put aside, you know, your best two, three, four hours every morning to write. You've got to hit a certain number of word counts. It's a muscle. That was my preconceived notion. I thought I knew all this because I read about writers' habits. And this was my biggest surprise when I started working with my my first book coach. And I was a little worried because I had a lot of clients and speaking engagements and and teachings of classes. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to have space to write. How do I create this structure and schedule so I can write this book? And she told me something that I didn't believe her at the time, but it turned out to be true. She said, don't worry, whatever wants to come out will be written. You will find the space and the time to write. And I was like, what is this woo-woo bullshit? Like that was going through my head. But guess what, Deb? She was completely right. You know, I I had asked her because, you know, I can tend to have this hyperachiever saboteur. I'd asked her like, what's normal? How do I stay on track? How many words should I write? How many pages should I write each week? And she'd given me some of this guidance. But she also told me, To write what feels resonant, write what I feel like writing. And I do remember there were a couple of times, and as you know, I'm a surfer, I enjoy the time out in nature. And there were a couple of times that when I was writing early on last spring, when I was out in some terrifying sessions surfing waves at Ocean Beach, and when I came back, I wrote and I wrote. And that emotion somehow connected me to some incidents when, when I was a little girl. And I remember sitting down and writing, and I think I was in such creative flow, everything just came out, and it had to come out. And I remember, I think I was looking at my clock, and I only had an hour before my next meeting, but I wrote so many pages, and that turned out to be some of the best stuff. So Mm -hmm. the question really about, like, how do I set up? And I think that was the question. What did you learn about yourself? I didn't need to. I didn't need Mm -hmm. to, because when... I followed my intuition when I just let whatever wanted to come out come out that's when I did my best writing I didn't need the particular rigor and structure that I that I thought I would need and that I typically use in my life
0: And there's a lesson for us hyperachievers is that we don't have to make it hard Yeah because we tend to we're like I need to write 4 hours a day and I read a million words every week and yeah. and we we find ways to make it hard and I think sometimes what happens is that We will cause ourselves to suffer through the process, but we will sometimes also not do it Mm -hmm. because we make it so hard before we even go in. Mm -hmm. So I guess the lesson I take from what you shared is let it be easy. Oh, and that that reminds me of a conversation we had actually about me starting this podcast. And you're like, wow, you have a lot of rules around that. And you have a (laughs) lot of things you think it's going to be really hard. Why don't you just like let it be easy and have fun with it? Yeah, which is a reminder of how how we can see that for other people, often mm-hmm. better than we can see it for ourselves. And this is mm-hmm. why we have coaches. This is why you and I do this for our clients. Absolutely. So see it. So yeah. So hyperachievers, you do not have to make it hard.
1: Absolutely. I have to remind myself of that over and over again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the things that you talk about in the beginning of the book is this notion of the
0: achievement monster. So, if we're talking about hyperachievers. Let's talk about the achievement monster. Yeah. How did, yours, so, how did yours get created?
1: My achievement monster has been with me as long as I can remember as a little girl. And I am Thai Chinese, I'm a Thai citizen. I'm a first generation immigrant to the United States. And my parents, my mother in particular, was very demanding. There's a stereotype of an Asian tiger mom, and she was that. She had given up her career, really, to raise my sister and I. And my father, for his job, moved to a different country every three years. So she followed along. She set up the household. She took care of my sister and I. So ever since I can remember, I needed to be the best, and that was uh, that was drilled into me from from her, and it started with uh, it started with being obedient, being patient, being this beautiful, well dressed, quiet little girl who was polite and did well in company, and then it moved into school, of course, being the highest achiever. Of course, hitting all the A's, not the A's, the A pluses, collecting all of those gold stars. And when I did that, I got love, I got praise. And because that's the way that she had been brought up, that's the way that she had treated herself. And for me, that need to collect trophies and gold stars and be the good girl and hit all these external achievement milestones that followed me through decades of my life. It was basically high school valedictorian, getting to handfuls of Ivy Leagues, going to Stanford, getting like the best jobs, the promotion, the you know title, the money, on and on and on. And there's parts of it that can be good. There's parts of it that can be good if, you, if that is what you really want from, from the inside out. But where I talk about the achievement monster is this ravenous drive to keep eating more, to keep doing more because it's never, ever enough. When you hit one milestone, you don't stop to celebrate. You're like, all right, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Those goalposts keep moving. And mine, I call this self-critical voice, the achievement monster. But I think everybody has their own self-critics that don't let them rest, that are continually judging yourself. Do more, be better. You're not enough. You have to keep going, going, going. And these are the ways that we self-sabotage ourselves.
0: So when you talk about the hyper achiever and the achievement monster and all the, always having to be good enough and get all the gold stars, well, how did that impact you when you were fired from your first job? Well, not the oh first job, but gosh. you were fired. The first time you were fired. Because that's, yeah. a, that's a big thing. When I read that in the book, I was like, Ugh. my inner hybrid achiever was like,
1: oh God, that'd be the worst thing
0: ever. So
1: what was that You like? know what is crazy? And before I was fired, I was running so hard. You know, I was essentially doing two different jobs, which was head of design for this consulting company, And I was also general manager of the San Francisco office, just getting a whole office up and going um, while the head office was in Seattle. So I, I also had two little girls under five. And I was, I had an apartment in Seattle. I was in Seattle three days a week and I was working so hard. I was doing business development, I was servicing clients, I was running a team, I was running an office, I was hiring, I was recruiting. That achievement monster, it was achieving and running a marathon that entire time. The funny thing is, um, the instant that I heard that they were going to let me go and shut down the entire San Francisco office, which I had to shut down too, so I had to let go all my staff, my first feeling was relief. I just knew deep down that it wasn't sustainable. But I was so stubborn, I was not going to let myself off the hook. My achievement monster would not let me admit, this is a mistake. Maybe you shouldn't have started that job. Maybe you're spending so much time away from your family. What does it mean to work these 60, 80-hour weeks and be traveling both to Seattle and to client sites all the time? The achievement monster didn't let me stop to think. It was go, 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 do, 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 do more. So the firing was such a blessing. And I knew it in that moment. There was such this huge feeling of relief. I was like, oh my goodness, this is done. And that was only momentary because my doer took over. I mean, I had to shut down an office. I had to let go a ton of people and make sure that they were okay and figure out severance and everything for them and help them find new jobs. But I can't forget that feeling of a, well, you know, this thing, which would seem like it's a disaster, it would seem like it's the worst thing ever. That's what so much, so many of us think about. What's the worst thing that could happen? Oh, you could be fired. When that happened, it actually wasn't a bad thing. We're so afraid of the boogeyman that these things are going to happen and it's going to be a disaster. And the reality is, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what I love about that story. It's usually, we, we spend so much time trying to avoid that worst case scenario of getting fired or whatever that worst case scenario might be in your case. and and then we get there like, oh, this is actually a blessing. Mm-hmm. So such a great reminder. we talk about Facebook because you have a couple of points in the book where you share some concepts from Facebook that I wanted to to share with the listeners because I thought they were really interesting. For sure. they, this concept of dog fooding. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about
1: that. Yeah, I mean, earlier in the podcast, we were talking about like tech vernacular and all these things that we just get locked into. But the concept of dog food and comes from the phrase to eat your own dog food. And it's commonly used in tech companies to mean trying out your own products, essentially doing the quality assurance testing, the early pre, 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 alpha, beta, using these early versions of the product yourself to figure out what the experience is, to work out all the kinks and all the issues so that when in theory you release it to a broader audience, to the public, most of these kinks have already been worked out. So that practice is called dog fooding.
0: And how is that useful today in your business? Do you use it in the concept of dog fooding in the business you're running now and advice you give to clients when they're mm-hmm. running
1: businesses? So I think where dog fooding fits in a whole product development cycle is that everything is iterative. There is no perfect product. There is no product that's not going to have like bugs or issues or things. And similarly, for us, our lives, you're always going to make mistakes. There's always going to be things that you learn and find and do. And in the product development process, you keep iterating and making it better each time. And what I talk to my clients about is that when you want to make a change in your life, when you want to make a shift, whether it's to do something brand new, it's to try a different pattern, it's to try a different habit, it's to try to maybe quiet the voice of that achievement monster, let's take a small itty-bitty step, a little itty-bitty action, and let's call it an experiment. So here's an example. One of my clients recently was head of design for a startup. And really wanted to see some changes in the startup. As it grew and scaled, priorities had shifted. The co-founder's priorities shifted. And she reported to the CEO. And she wanted to really slow down a little bit and work a bit more on the quality standards, the customer success, rather than single-mindedly focusing on conversion and retention. Just really the metrics, the, the business metrics that ran it. But she was a quieter type of leader. And she was afraid of what would happen if she was going to have these conversations. So one little experiment we worked on, I asked her to do, or we co-created together. She was going to start to bring this up with her boss, the CEO. And it wasn't that she was going to say, hey, I'm really unhappy. My team's really unhappy. All our partners are really unhappy. We need to make this big change. It was more, hey, I've been thinking. And there might be some changes that we could try out. We could experiment using this language that might make things better for the business and the customers. Is this something you might be willing to listen to? So if I'm going very meta, because I'm using experiment in the, in the language as well, but her action was a little experiment. If she tried something different, if she tried to advocate for what she wanted and what her team wanted, and did it via a conversation with her boss, the CEO, what would happen? And like an experiment, like in a science experiment, you have a hypothesis. There's something that you want. The assumption is if she asks and advocates for what she wants, the CEO will listen to her and something might change. But you don't know. That's your hypothesis and your hope. And what I talk about with all my clients is run the experiment. You don't know what it's going to feel like. You don't know what the outcome is going to be like. Don't get tied to the outcome. Run the experiment and see what you can learn. So that concept of experimentation comes from dog fooding and this product development process. And that's how I use it in my coaching, both for myself as well as for my clients.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you and I both work with high achievers and we know that they often want to get it right the first time. And so this is such an important concept. And I use that too of experimenting. And Mm -hmm. I love that about the book is that at the end of each chapter, there are a series of experiments that Mm -hmm. you can try. Because when I read books like this on leadership that have exercises at the end, my achievement monster sits right up and says, all right, let's do this exercise. (sighs) Right.
1: And so I really appreciated that about the experiments you offered. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And one of the things that I wanted to do pretty intentionally is the first couple of chapters, the experiments are less about doing things and they're much more about inquiries. It's the research process, similar to product development, is when you have a product, you want to research and understand what your users want, how you might meet your users' needs. So the research process, which I call inquiry, is really getting more in touch with yourself, what you need, doing a process of journaling, reflection, and just answering a bunch of questions first. And that, I believe, is the first step before you even put an experiment into action, although it's very iterative. You keep coming back to the research and to the experiments and to the hypotheses and you learn and you repeat.
0: Yes, rinse and repeat. And that's what the Stellar Life Project is about, right? Is coming to the the life as as an experiment, as what what can we discover? What can we create here? Okay, that didn't work. Let's try that again. Or that worked, but a little bit of an adjustment here. And really coming from that place of curiosity, because the word inquiry is about an exploration and and curiosity as opposed to got to get this right, which is the achievement monster. We know the achievement monster is in the house when we are trying to get it right. Mm
1: -hmm. Brene Brown talks a lot about this concept. She calls them fucking first times. And I quote, so that's not my language. That's Brene Brown's language. Who are you to argue with the queen of vulnerability? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But she calls them FFTs essentially, which is basically The first time you do something, it's never going to be perfect. It's the first time. So you might as well know it, acknowledge it, swear at it if you want, but approach it, as you said, Deb, from this atmosphere of curiosity, of a beginner's mind, of coming to it and knowing, wow, this is the very first time I'm going to be a beginner in terms of starting my own business, in terms of writing a book, in terms of starting a podcast. And I'm going to make mistakes because it's the FFT. And that's okay. Let's just find it. Let's be curious. Let's embrace all of this newness and unknown. And it's really hard. So that's why you call it an FFT so you can curse at it.
0: And I think the important thing that I want to illustrate for listeners right now is that you said curse at it, not yourself. Exactly. Because as hyperachievers, we can often take it and use it as a weapon against ourselves. It's like, go ahead and curse at it. I mean, that's why I did the warning at the beginning of the podcast that there will be language, because I know there were times when you were cursing that book. You're like, I hate this and book and it's fine to curse at it and have that expression and then pick it up and get back in the experiment. Absolutely. It'd be fun, right? Because you can be, there's that, that shout at it, you know, express your frustration and, and move on. Because sometimes we think we can't express our frustration or else we're being wrong. Mm-hmm. So
1: I think that's such an important distinction to make. And that's also the reason why we name things. That's why we call this the achievement monster, the self-critic they're not us. There are voices that we can choose to listen to or to ignore. I think it's really important to have a name for a thing, as you said, an it that is not us. You know, It helps move it away from our identity to be something else. And we can make a choice if we want to listen to it or curse at it or do something else.
0: There's another concept from Facebook called focus blocking. Tell us about that because I think that there's a lot of our listeners who Are going to benefit from hearing about it.
1: Yeah. And I don't think this is a concept that's unique to Facebook because I've seen this implemented at different technology companies. So let me paint the picture. I don't know if some of your listeners are people who are very, very busy and they have meetings packing their calendars from Monday through Friday, maybe 9am to 5pm or even 9am to 8pm. And All of your life is divided into these 30-minute, 60-minute chunks, and then you're running from one to the next, to the next, to the next, with barely time to breathe or take a bathroom break in between. This can be a really, really common state because I think the number of fires to fight, the number of things to be done is infinite. Especially when you're a high achiever who's super capable. Exactly. So the concept of focus blocks and where this came, where this came from is we had done a survey, a court no a survey that ran every six months, I believe, for designers at Facebook. And the question was, how often do you have time to do what it is that you do best? And the answer was shockingly low. I think it was in the 30, the the 30 percentage or something like that. And the reason being, there is this running and context switching and moving and shaking and doing all of this stuff, running from meeting to meeting and dealing with crisis after crisis. So what we know from the research is that creativity, innovation, doing your best work does not happen in that particular atmosphere. And Facebook as a whole had known that. And they had started to implement a practice called No Meeting Wednesdays. It's in the middle of the week. It's a break. It's a time where you can clear and have no meetings. And it didn't always work, but that was the theory in practice. And what we wanted to do was to go a step further. And in an attempt to create this white space, this spaciousness in people's schedules, have designers block out three hours of nothing time. It would be three hours of focus blocks that are on your calendar that people cannot block into. And what you can do then is you can go deep and focus on whatever it is you want, going deep into a conceptual idea, going deep into writing a document or creating a presentation. And you could put stuff in it, or you could leave it open and have that be thinking time, visioning and dreaming time. And that's something I work on a lot with my clients. It's mean, like, where do you find this uninterrupted time? And some people will do things like look at their calendar and schedule retreats and break times, but you do that in big chunks of time. And then you also do it in your week. So having these three hour chunks of focus blocks was something that we used at Facebook and where it became even more helpful is when an entire team got on this together. When an entire team would say, all right, we're going to pick to do focus blocks for three hours on Tuesday mornings and Friday afternoons because if everyone is heads down on their focus block, protecting their space and creating in that time, you're not going to get emails. You're not going to get messenger or Slack pings. And that's your focus. That's your, that's using the structure of a calendar to create space for getting in the flow and making things. Mm-hmm.
0: When you're talking about the question was how much time? you spend doing what you do best. And you know that I phrase that, how much time are you in your zone of genius? Mm -hmm. And that's a question we have to be asking all the time, regardless of your role in the world. You might be an entrepreneur, you might be in leadership. It's a question you've got to ask yourself frequently because if you're not there, you are not giving your best to the world. And I love the part where you added the teams doing it for each other. So if you're an entrepreneur or a leader that has the the say, get your team on board, do this for your team and I actually think, you know, one of my clients, who's just got one hire. He had his, he's added his first hire mm-hmm. and we've started implementing something like this. Mm-hmm. It's just this space because it's never too soon to start that. You might, well, I don't have a team or I'm on my own. I can just find those times, but we don't have it. You and I know because it's a journey for us too. We continue to struggle to make space and mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh crap, you're right. Again. You know, the schedule's full again. Yep. Let's clear that and be in integrity with our, with our calendar and with our schedule. So it's, um, it's a, it's an important concept that the more time you spend in your zone of genius, doing what you do best, what a difference it makes Mm -hmm. and it'll feel so spacious. Absolutely. So one of the things you say, I think it was in chapter four it's about the discomfort of not knowing. And I'm wondering how some people, for them, it's like those focus blocks can be a place of, well, I don't know what's going to come up. I I don't know. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's a good transition to talk about the not knowing because you have a big sigh. Tell me about that. I think
1: that many of us struggle with uncertainty. This has happened with our global health crisis. We don't know what's going to happen next. We can't plan. We don't know what's going to happen in the holidays and next summer. We don't know if we can fly. Everything's changing all the time. And some of us, myself included, like to control and plan as a way to, you know, get tight and tense and know what's going to happen. So the not knowing is hugely or can be hugely uncomfortable. And working with different people, some people are okay with not knowing in one area of their lives, but not in others. So for me, as a designer, having to create awesome products and concepts out of nothing, I was completely comfortable with not knowing. I didn't know if we're going to come up with a brilliant idea for for the people we serve or our clients. Um, Because when I worked at design firms, we worked for for the world's top brands. We would have to come up with the future of connected televisions, the future of autonomous vehicles, the future of, I don't know, networked homes with smart bridges. We didn't know what we were going to come up with, but what helped me through that not knowing was knowing that the process worked, really knowing you just trust the process. And the process was the design process of starting with research, understanding what people's needs are, and then from there doing a lot of diverging thinking, a lot of brainstorms, a lot of yes, and a lot of ideation, just going wide and open and dreaming And then converging to be like, all right, maybe this is one direction. Maybe this is another one direction. We're going to sketch these out. We're going to prototype these out. So there was always uncertainty and not knowing. But through that, I knew that there was a process and we would get to something. So many times, some of my clients will have more confidence with the uncertainty and not knowing in some areas of their lives, but not others. So where I dive into in terms of getting a little more comfortable are What areas of your life are there where uncertainty is okay? What helps with that? And how do you take that and apply that to the other areas of your life? What is the being in the moment, trusting the process, taking one little day, one little step at a time because time's always going to pass and you will know. Can you be patient enough to know that maybe it's not today? It's sometime in the future. So good. And I love that idea
0: of Trusting the process as a reminder for individuals, because you talked about it in a big sense with the team and designing a product. And if you think about it, you're creating your own life. Mm-hmm. And if you can trust the process by asking the questions, what is going to serve you? In your case, you were talking as a designer, what serves the client, but what's going to serve me as an individual? What do I want in my life? That was what the Stellar Life Project came out of that place of like, what do I need? Yep. And this is what I encourage other people to do too. And I know you do as well. It's like, There is a process. So, so many of our clients come to us like, I don't know how, I don't know what to
1: do. And that's okay. process. And it's completely okay not to know right now. That's simply part of it. There will be clarity as time passes, as each day passes, as you try different things. You will know. Exactly.
0: Okay. So, we've talked about breaking old patterns and new processes. There's one thing I want to ask you about is this ritual of celebration. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I know that's the story. We had a a celebration recently for your book launch. It was really fun to see you do that because I know that you were looking for the next mountaintop, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it was a big step to celebrate. So tell us about that. What was that like for you?
1: I think celebration is something like gratitude that we all need to do more of. High achievers are always looking for the next goal, the next mountain. It's like, what's that next shiny object, the next thing for me to conquer? And instead, similar to the research on gratitude practices, celebration practices force you to slow down and appreciate and look back and be like, wow, look at these things that I've done. Because we forget. For many of my clients, I'll send them a brag book. There'll be a journal where I say, like, write down, write down what you're proud of. And some of them are like, brag. There's something bad about brag. You know, I can't, I can't brag. I don't want to be a braggart and talk about all this, but that's what we do as coaches. We see and celebrate our clients. And I think we teach them. We teach them to establish these rituals to celebrate for themselves. And for many of my clients who lead teams, I teach them to do it for themselves first and then to bring it into their teams. If you have a team meeting once a week, start it with celebrations. Start it with calling out, hey, Kudos to so and so who did this and that. Be very, very specific. Kudos to John who spent extra time figuring out the marketing campaigns and helping Brad with um, getting the email campaigns out correctly. Just like shouting these out and it amplifies on each other. It just creates this atmosphere of celebration for the team. And that really is a mindset shift that sets up the team for the right thing to do next. And it takes practice. It takes practice to,
0: to find those things. Cause it, we always think that it has to be something really massive mm-hmm. and it could be just like, Oh, this week I just did my physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. So my shoulder's going to get better. Yep. Right? So it can be small things too, and celebrate the the wins. Okay. So I know we don't have much time left with you because I know you've got a call to get. So I don't want to end this call without talking about surf. Mm. You have an acronym with surf. D's a surfer. We see the remnant of a bruise on her face where she had an interaction. She had a kiss with her surfboard. Yep. For those of you who are watching the video version.
1: And the acronym SURF. Yeah. Take us through that real quick. Yeah. So surfing is a huge theme of the book. And it's a huge theme for slowing down, being out in nature, really. Being in the flow. Being in the flow, having a perfect mesh of this uh, being and doing. And for me, I use the acronym SURF for myself to remind myself. S is the stop. Just take a moment and pause and understand what is the pattern that you're in? What is this thing that you were doing? What are you triggered by? What is this emotion? It's kind of the stop. You is understand, which I talked about a little bit, like being curious, being an inquiry. What the heck is happening to me right now? The, re, the R, which I love, stands for re. And I'm a little bit of a rebel. And sometimes I hate acronyms. So the re is pick your own after you've stopped, after you've understood, what is it that you want to do next? Do you want to rebel? Do you want to rejoice? Do you want to recreate? What is it that you want to pause and go back to do? And then finally, the F doesn't stand for fuck, as you had thought, maybe. The F stands for force and flow. There's a sense of being in flow, this flow of creativity and energy and just this state where you're filled with joy and creativity. And I think that is like the being where time just flies endlessly, but we're not in that all the time. So it's force and flow. Force is structure. The need to have these rituals, like the ritual of celebration, the need to have structures in your calendar, like focus blocks. And this, the daily little reminders and muscle practices that we set in place to help make us successful and fulfilled. So surf is stop, understand, re, and force and flow.
0: And that force too, I'm reminded of Dylan Thomas's poem, the force through which drives the flower through the green fuse. So it's Mm. that force of the creative force as Mm -hmm. well. Exactly. There is a doing and there's a place for the doing as well. We don't want to say that we got to stop
1: doing. I really love that. And that's beautiful. That poem's beautiful. I love that balance concept. Mm -hmm.
0: So good. Okay, 2D. So I know you've got to go really quick. So I'm going to take our 10 rapid fire questions and make them three. My favorite three. Star Trek or Star Wars?
1: Star Wars. Hands down.
0: All right. If you were to name your life a project, I called my life, the Stellar Life Project, my business Stellar Life Project. What would be the name of yours? Attitudy. (laughs)
1: was a nickname that was given to me a long time ago. And that's the first thing that came to mind. Yep, I would say that. That's true. Now, success leaves clues.
0: I'm going to give you an opportunity to leave a clue for our listeners.
1: So one of my favorite quotes comes from Mike Vance. He was uh, one of the heads of Disney's creative wings, creative arms. And his quote is this. Slowing down is sometimes the best way to speed up. Slowing down is sometimes the best way to speed up. And what I love about that is that it gives you permission to rest. It gives you permission to take space. And not simply for the sake of taking space, because I know that we have some driven people listening, but because that's going to make you better, going to make you more successful both inside and outside. You need that. You need that rest time is the balance. You need the balance of that doing and the being. Yeah. So I wanted to leave those trails. Fill yourself up. Yep. Mm-hmm. So good. Tutti, thank
0: you so much for being with us today. Where can people find you? Where can they get the
1: book? Absolutely. So the book is available on Amazon and also on my site. The site is com, And you can find me on social media. I'm at Tutti at Instagram. Wonderful. So check out Make
0: Space to Lead. It's a great book. I had the privilege of reading it before I even went to print and it's been such a joy to watch you bring this into existence. And again, I thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today and I will see you again very soon. And listeners, I will see you again next week. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this, please rate, subscribe, follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts and make today stellar and I will see you all very soon. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and follow us wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. I'm your host, Debra Stellingworth. See you next week on the Stellar Life Project podcast.